Hi, we're Grace and Clara, here to shake up the world of women's health. We know firsthand how intimidating it can be to speak up when it comes to issues like your menstrual cycle or menopause. That's why we create Unprocessed, a weekly podcast where we dive into every aspect of women's health, from mental well-being to physical nutrition. We're here to ask the burning questions and encourage us all to advocate for ourselves. So get ready for some smart, cheeky and witty discussions about all things women's health. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. You have Grace and Clara in your ears and today we invite Chloe Sheehan onto the podcast to discuss her journey with fertility and miscarriage. But first, Clara, you have been quite candid with our listeners sharing your journey with endometriosis and now an autoimmune condition. It's been two weeks since you've shared with us about your diagnosis of Hashimoto's and I was wondering, how's it going and do you have an update for us? Yeah, so I'm... As weird as this sounds, I'm kind of glad you asked because obviously I found out it's literally just two weeks and two days ago that I had Hashimoto's disease um, and all my tests indicated it as such. So if you haven't listened to the episode, listen to um, the episode a couple of weeks before this one and you can kind of hear more about how I found out and obviously the doctor's reaction So I have been doing something called the autoimmune protocol, which actually has been very, very similar to our I quit sugar diet. The only difference has been that there's a few things that I can't have from the normal I quit sugar recipes, but I've actually been able to tweak a lot of our normal I quit sugar recipes to just do this diet. Now, this diet is a bit like when you do FODMAP, it is not something that you stay on long term. I want to let that for everyone, let that be known and be clear. None of these diets are designed for you to stay on them long-term. All they're designed for you to do is to flag what might be an issue with you or what might be causing inflammation. So the diet that I'm on is no sugar. So very obviously our principles, 100% our principles. So I've been totally no sugar. I've actually been gluten-free and I've been dairy-free. So Our meal plans all come with those as options. So I've been able to tweak a lot of what we've been doing. There's other things that I can't eat that we do allow, which um, is actually further down the track, but like nightshades, which is stuff like aubergine or eggplant, depending on which area you're in, we call it eggplant. Um, Obviously, tomato is out anyway because tomato is a fruit, (laughs) which I'm sure everyone knows at home. Um, Tomato is out. There are some fruits that are actually allowed in and they are the fruits that we reintroduce anyway. So some of the berries, they're allowed um, on the diet as well. So it's been interesting navigating this, but luckily I've had a lot of resources at my hand with I Quit Sugar. Now, what I really want to talk about is the difference it's made in just two weeks. So I've had really inflamed hands and ankles so high water retention across my hands and my ankles that has reduced significantly I get um you know I feel like an old lady so I've been feeling like in my bones I feel like a little old lady and that's starting to reduce my energy level has come up significantly I'm no longer always just bone tired like I said to John once that it feels like I'm in a fog of tiredness like I didn't know how to explain it so there's obviously tiredness that comes with you know having a child and just everyday life but I just felt like I was in this cloud of fogness which other people couldn't penetrate I was inarticulate so in meetings, I really felt like I just was struggling to get my words out. And I know, Grace, you and I have both spoken about this as being something that's happened to us in the past. And it's that kind of brain fog that you get that is just, once again, talking about baseline is just not your baseline. So I that has been a big game changer for me because... I have always been someone who is really quite articulate, who can form sentences, who, you know, who has a decent vocabulary and not being able to articulate myself properly has been really devastating. I don't know how else to describe it, but it is something that I have felt has just been really upsetting. And so that started to change. I've dropped close to three kilos 
wow. in the two weeks. That's so, amazing. Yeah, so I started the diet. Yep, I started the diet last Thursday, so it's just under two weeks, and I've dropped close to three kilos. Now, I'm someone – now, I we've talked about weight a lot. Yeah. So – and I'm quite open in my battle for my weight, and I call it a battle. I call it a battle because it's not that I'm not happier being a bigger person. It's that I was getting so uncomfortable in my own skin and I was struggling to do things. So for me, it's all always been about the outcome of what your body can do. It's not necessarily always been a looks-based thing. And not being able to just have the energy to do stuff that I used to be able to do or not wanting to do stuff that I used to be able to do has really been devastating. But it's also, you know, I mean, everyone has this. I don't think it's particularly vain. I think I'm going to use the word vain. I was trying to struggle. I was trying to maybe look for another word, but I don't think it's that vain to also want to present yourself well. And I Mm. feel like at this weight, I'm not presenting myself the best I can present myself. Um, And that's been really devastating. So it's been really horrible for my self-esteem. And the more I read into Hashimoto's, the more I found out that, you know, extreme weight gain over a short period of time, which is what I went and originally saw the doctor about when I was in my early 30s, that's really common. But it's also almost an inability to be able to lose weight. So once mm-hmm. you've gained it, it's really, really hard to lose weight. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the triggers for me, obviously, I spoke about this in the last episode, was reading a blog from Sarah Wilson, who, you know, founded I Quit Sugar, and she said that she had gained 17 kilos quite rapidly. And she's, you know, she's not a particularly big person, and she was struggling to lose that. And it's when she found out that she had Hashimoto's and she changed her diet significantly that that dropped off. And I really just didn't think it would work for me. But having three kilos come off just through a change of diet alone and then having all this energy come back, you know, as I said, the brain fog has started to clear. It's just been revolutionary. I don't know how else to describe it. It has honestly been revolutionary. Hey, it's Grace here. Just want to quickly interrupt the episode to say it's time to start nourishing you. Join the eight-week program and get eight weeks of easy, delicious meal plans with full shopping lists. And at $5.50 or under per serve, it couldn't be more affordable to eat healthy. Each week, we'll give you a range of meals to cook that are quick and easy to prepare with minimal waste. You don't have to be a master chef to enjoy these nutritious meals. Plus fun online workouts, mentoring from industry experts, and access to our exclusive sleep school. Spots are limited. Join now. Now let's get back into the episode. As mentioned in our intro, today we are joined by Chloe Sheehan. Chloe is a qualified naturopath, health educator, and self-confessed hormone whisperer. Chloe supports a range of individuals and couples on their journey to conception through pregnancy and beyond. But it's Chloe's personal fertility journey that we dive into today as we discuss her experience with pregnancy loss. Just a quick trigger warning for this episode, guys. If you or someone you know has experienced pregnancy loss, please reach out to SANS on 1300072637 or Bears of Hope on 1300114673. We'll also put links to these organizations in our show notes as well as Pink Elephant Support Network and Gidget Service. Please remember, help is always available and you are never alone. Chloe, welcome to the podcast. I always kick off by asking our guests, what was the light bulb moment that made you pursue this career? Yeah, so I actually went into my naturopathy degree probably about four years after high school. It took me quite a while to actually work out what I wanted to do. I probably had four gap years, um, just extending that time a little bit longer. Um, You know, I envied those people who were like, knew what they wanted to do straight away. I was sort of always working out. I wanted to do something meaningful. And then I sort of went through my own um, health concerns uh, and I saw a naturopath and it just sort of clicked to me that that's something that I wanted to learn more about. If I could learn 
not only information about my body but also about how to help other people I thought what a great career that could be and I didn't realize that to do that it meant doing a bachelor of health science with a lot of chemistry a lot of biology Um, but four years later I do not regret doing the degree at all. Obviously you talk a lot about miscarriage can you share your experience um, behind you know miscarriage and what's led you to that path? I guess it's not something that I really chose to have an interest in. Um, Mm. It was more so my personal experiences and I have always been, like I was saying before, somebody who has been fascinated in knowing the hows and whys of the human body and and not just saying, okay, I've got that niggle, um, just I'll take this and it'll be fine, I want to know why. And Mm. so with my own experience with miscarriage I wanted to know why you know and sometimes that's not always going to be the case but why was my body doing this and then naturally just sharing um, that on my own social media I got an influx of clients who wanted to see me because they went through their own experience with miscarriage Um, and so personally for me Um, my journey sort of began when we started trying to conceive after our wedding in 2021. We had the best wedding ever. We were on such a high because we went through the biggest sort of COVID lockdowns and and we thought we were coming out of it. Mm. Um, We got married in May 2021 and we were allowed a dance floor and there was no restrictions. My family from Queensland were able to come down and we got married and it was amazing and then after that we were like okay we're ready to start trying um and it took us probably about six months to actually conceive Uh, Mm. and that was actually after I found out that I had a stage three um HPV infection and so high-grade cell changes which I needed a let's procedure for to remove that after that surgery we were able to conceive but that pregnancy only lasted for about under seven weeks, which was to me quite shocking. You know, you wait six months or so to conceive and then to just be hit with, no, it, it hasn't progressed. Um, I guess with, if you haven't experienced before, it's just heartbreaking. It sounds like you went on quite a health journey that you know, it was quite serious and quite major. How has that affected the way that you look at diet and the way that you look at um, a holistic nutrition? Yeah, and so I I didn't really realise how much was involved in the whole conception journey for me Mm. to think, okay, I'm healthy, I've got a normal regular cycle, but then to find out that I had um, diagnosed stage three um, high cell changes in my cervix needing surgery for that um in terms of my loss story continuing we were able to conceive two months after that initial loss and that ended at five weeks and so to go through two early pregnancy losses in less than sort of eight months um you know I started to really question okay what is within my control how can I make some changes And I was already a healthy person, you know, Mm. I'm I'm a naturopath, I have a good understanding of my environment, I have a good understanding of my nutrition, I wasn't a heavy drinker, I wasn't smoking. So, you know, I think that sort of brings up, well, what, what do I do next? Which area do I sort of focus down? Um, And so, yes, nutrition plays a a really big role. You know, I think um, when we're just talking about conception in general, making two or three dietary changes, such as increasing fruit and veg, increasing, you know, fiber and making sure you don't have any nutritional deficiencies can largely increase your chances of conception, talking about both male and female partners Mm. involved there. Mm, That's interesting you say male and female because what I've learned on this podcast is women hold so much of the pressure from when they do have miscarriages and through fertility and men aren't considered as much, I guess you would say. Clara, did you feel that way 
through your pregnancy? Yeah, absolutely. I often joke that John um, could have been a sperm donor. Mm. (laughs) He really, in that whole journey, um, he wasn't considered at all. And he wasn't, I feel like he wasn't kind of made to feel part of the process. And on the other, on the flip side, the other thing that, you know, we talk about often is that men have a, I think, a longer realisation, you know, women feel so much burden that they carry, especially around stuff like miscarriage. I think that's a, a big thing. And, you know, and conception as well. But women carry such a burden um, in that whole journey, fertility journey. And it can sometimes be a harder thing for a man to grasp uh, that a lot of the stuff that they do can affect the outcome as well. Completely. Um, I see that in clinical practice. I see that in my own experience as well. Um, You know, how often do we see sort of men sitting with laptops on their lap or, you know, not sort of Mm. thinking about how much alcohol intake or, you know, are they over-exercising, under-exercising? What's Mm. their weight look like? Male factor equates to 40% of total fertility. And when we're thinking about miscarriage, you know, it's really that egg that's going to accept that sperm. And conception is a genetic transfer of DNA material from a different individual. And so if that is, is there's going to be a mismatch for whatever reason, um, then, you know, that increases the risk of miscarriage. And considering, I think, you know, if people are in this space or interested about learning, they uh, are learning about fertility, they would have seen those big catchy headlines saying that sperm um, quality has actually decreased by 50% over a 50-year span. And that's a like a decrease of 1% a year Um, and it's not actually showing signs of stopping. And so, you know, I had to, although like you were saying, Clara, I was taking on this big sort of, role of what have I done why what have what did I do to cause this but the more I sort of educated myself I was you know well aware that this is a partnership this involves not only me but my partner as well um and so, you know, just some changes around that. My partner was an ultra marathon runner. And when you think about the testes, they have their own mechanism of going up into the body mm. when, they're, uh, when they're cold and dropping when they're too warm. And so thinking about testicular health, those tiny little sperm are so super sensitive to temperature, to pH, and so um, controlling or trying to optimize sperm health is going to be a really big factor for anybody regardless of whether you've had miscarriage or not yeah my partner wouldn't even think about any of that to be honest as long as he looks good in a his active wear he's happy <laughs> yeah I remember um I was sort of it was after sort of our second loss and I was like you know what we're gonna do some we're gonna do something self-care I'm gonna book a self-care day for us and I booked mm. us a infrared sauna and probably like 15 minutes of us sitting in there I was like oh my god get out your testicles are going to like over (laughs) they're gonna be too hot I was like what was I thinking I was like we're in 60 degree infrared sauna I was like you need to get out and have a cold shower yeah you're cooking him (laughs) I know I was like this is gonna be a beautiful self-care like practice we're just sitting in here and all of a sudden like light bulb moment I was like get the hell out of here um Yeah, so, you know, a lot of those factors around sort of trying to optimise health and it's really hard because you're trying to be optimistic but you never know when you're going to fall pregnant or when that pregnancy is going to work along your own sort of fertility journey. I think that's the big thing is you lose control and I don't think a lot of people understand that there's a lot you can't control about your fertility journey but then there is also a lot more you can control in terms of how you go into it. So whether it be mentally, physically, or, you know, nutritionally. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I completely agree. Um, and, you know, a lot of that self-battle as well of just being like, no, nah, I'm not going to fall pregnant or um, that negative self-talk of I'm a naturopath in the fertility space. Why would anybody want to take advice from me? I'm a failure. All of these thoughts come up um, and a lot of them are going to be invisible. You know, they're, they're going to be occurring when you're driving in the car and it's really hard for somebody else to see and sort of say, hey, what? why are you thinking like that? This is not your fault. Um, or even, you know, I remember going to a hen's party and mm. almost half of the people there were pregnant and I was like, this mm. is just torture, you know. It's mm. like I'm just surrounded by these conversations of pregnancy mm. and it's all you want. Um, mm. And so a lot of my discussions with my clients is around that holistic support and saying, well, you know, I'm not going to be that sort of magic wand to say here's the potion or something that you've been looking for or the answer to um, your infertility or recurrent loss, but I sort of say, what is within our control? What can we do? Where can we make optimizations across your nutrition, across your environment, across your mental health as well, um, which I personally found you, I needed. You need that holistic multi-factorial um, approach. I want to dive into something you said there um, around mental health and fertility and pregnancy. So recently I've started doing a yin yoga class. I don't know if either of you have done this type of yoga but it like builds you in with bolsters and blocks into yoga positions for like 10 minutes and it like cracks all your back and your legs and you're just in a state of relaxation but you're in these weird positions but coming out of those classes I just felt like all the stress was relieved and I felt so good so my question is if we're in a state of fight and flight all the time what is that doing to our fertility and our hormones and is that affecting things like miscarriage? Firstly, I would say that um, when people have offered me advice around meditation or slow like yoga practices, that doesn't suit me personally because I don't want to be slow. I don't want to be in my head. Um, I personally need uh, mindfulness, something where I'm guided through um thought processes, I need to read a book, I need to watch TV or listen to music. I can't do slow, I can't do, and you know, my psychologist is probably saying, well, you probably need to process those sorts of things. But personally for me, I'm much better when I have a distraction of thoughts. Um, and the other factor there is that stress is going to be an inevitable part of everyday life. You know, if stress was the main cause of miscarriage, then mm. it would, why are people falling pregnant through, you know, non-consensual intercourse or over in war-torn countries? But when we think about stress from a hormonal perspective, long-term stress can have an impact, say, on our hormonal picture, which then may have a role in your ability to conceive. So I think it's it's a tough one with stress because our body should be resilient enough to deal with it. But yes, it can definitely have a role in other factors such as is your stress causing you not to eat, which causes you then to have a nutritional deficiency? Or does your stress, you know, cause you to sort of lose weight um, or increase weight? So I think not stress necessarily, but it's sort of um, other factors of, of how it influences other factors, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. As a practitioner, I have to take away my bias and give all of the options and say, if you say, like you, Grace, who really enjoys that sort of um, calming, slower practices, great, go for it. But, you know, it's important that I don't have that personal sort of this is what works for me, this is what you should do. It's more like here's everything pick and choose what's going to be most suitable for you. Absolutely. And that's the same with exercise, isn't it? If you find exercise that you love, you're going to be drawn to it more mm. than like dragging yourself to the gym. I'm not a gym person and I find I was always dragging my feet to go there. 
um, after my second loss, I sort of was thinking, okay, well, you know, you go through those grief stages and you sort of have that lull for a bit and processing and, you know, all you want to do is sort of sit on the couch and not talk to anybody. But then slowly you come out of that. And I found, you know, I was more inclined to be go to go walking and do certain things um and then it's almost like you build yourself up to this strong point again and you're like okay well I'm ready to start to try again I'm ready to be open to the fact that we can give this another shot and I think for something that worked for me as well is to have a a good group of practitioners or healthcare supporters and I um, was seeing a fertility specialist Um, you know I highly recommend for anybody who's had two or more losses even if they're short spaced or drawn out to have a really good fertility specialist on hand because as soon as you fall pregnant again you want that support of regular blood testing, checking HCG, checking your progesterone levels and just even having that reassurance of not just them but also under the care of their fertility nurses. So a quick question, what, you know, when you talk about um, a fertility specialist, are you talking about straight medical practice or, you know, traditional? Is there other non-traditional medical medical help or guidance that you would also advocate for? I would highly recommend that everyone has the care of a conventional medical fertility specialist as a primary um, carer in terms of they're the ones who are going to be supporting and ordering things like semen analysis or additional sort of blood tests. Mm. But from a non-conventional, more complementary style, acupuncture has some amazing research in terms of supporting um, fertility. And like Grace, you were mentioning as well, from a mental health uh, stress perspective too. So that's probably what I'd recommend. If you're somebody who likes massage, um, then that. But I'd say the and also, of course, like a naturopath and nutritionist. But, you know, mm. outside of that, personal preference I think what happens to people is that they try something for maybe one month and then they'll switch to something else and then it's like and then it's something else and it's like you know that's going to be a financial load as well so it's more just consistency sticking with someone who you trust to see that journey through so then what tests do couples have to undergo to support their fertility and navigate a fertility plan yeah so if somebody has come to me and they've had one or two losses the likelihood that that is due to genetic chromosomal abnormalities is highly likely um the the statistics that they at the following pregnancy will be a viable successful pregnancy is is good um so when we're looking at you know um if you've had one loss that that occurs in one in four pregnancies not just one in four women uh one in four pregnancies and so it's common most of those occurring even before the woman realizes that she is pregnant um and then if you've had two losses you know it is a, a lower um, chance, but then again, the chance that they'll cons- have a viable pregnancy following. Um, but still, I would recommend that even after a loss, you would be doing some basic blood tests, things like vitamin D, things like iron, you know, those are nutrient stores that are really, really important in pregnancy. If you're getting to that sort of second or third loss, then I would highly recommend a semen analysis for the partner involved. And what does a semen analysis check? So a semen analysis is, you know, I think there's a lot of fear around it, you know, that you've got to sort of sit in this room with some like sexy (laughs) magazines and it's just everyone's judging you and you've got to bring your sort of sample to the table. Um, But it's something that you, that the male partner can um, do at home and as long as he lives sort of within 30 minutes of a um, pathology clinic can just drop the sample off. You know, they see these whether it's the admin team or whether it's the nurses, they see it multiple times a day. They're not fussed at all. Um, But essentially what a semen analysis is going to look at is the semen concentration, which is basically that medium or that fluid that houses the sperm. So the semen um, 
analysis will look at the concentration of the semen. It will look at um, how many sperm, tiny little sperm there are. Um, and it will not just look at that, but how well they're moving. Sperm actually swim in a corkscrew motion. And so if they're not swimming adequately, you know, then they're not going to make their way from the vagina up into the fallopian tubes. And when we think about conception, only 5% of that ejaculate is actually making its way into um, the uterus. So if you have a small sperm concentration to begin with, then the likelihood of 5% of that actually making it into the uterus and making its way into the fallopian tube to meet the egg, you know, we just want to make sure that your chances are optimized there. Um, they not only look at how it swims, but also the morphology, which means the makeup of the sperm. Does the sperm have two heads? Does it have three tails? You know, what does it look like? All of that DNA of the sperm is going to be in its head. And so if that morphology is incorrect, then it means a higher chance of potential genetic or chromosomal abnormalities. Obviously, you speak about, you know, you've spoken about the, the male and the female role. What can you do to help boost the male side of, you know, sperm quality from mm -hmm. a naturopathic point of view? You know, there is some amazing, amazing ways in which we can get really good sperm um, motility, morphology and concentration changes. When we think about the maturation cycle of sperm, it's around 90 to 120 days. And so what you're doing within that sort of three to four months can make a really big impact on that sperm um, quality. And so we think about the good sort of fats in our diets, especially coming from omegas. Um, mm. So whether that be fish oils or whether that be oily fish, you know, that's really going to support the morphology of that sperm. We need to think about B vitamins, you know, everyone's sort of hung up on folic acid or folate for the woman um, when we're thinking about neural tube, but that's just as important for the male counterpart when we're talking about um, chromosomal genetic uh, roles in that sperm as well. Um, antioxidants, so making sure that they're eating five serves of veg, two mm. serves of fruit at a minimum. All of those things have a really big role in supporting sperm and dropping alcohol. You know, after, say, two or three drinks within a short space of time, we're unable to drive a motor vehicle. Mm. Think about what that's doing to something that's such a smaller size to us, how that sperm will swim after it's had a big influence of mm. alcohol. Um, alcohol is a toxin on the body. Uh, so is any sort of drugs, smoking, all of those things, even chemicals, you know, that's a big one that we probably don't speak enough about. Um, yeah. Grace, I think I was saying this to you before, but in our sort of naturopathic world, even sort of in the fertility world, we sort of think about fragrance as the new smoking. Everyone's got candles lying around. We're using cleaning products, you know, we're using all these different fragrances, but they're all made up of chemicals um, or a chemical sort of cocktail, which isn't sort of researched as well from a fertility influence. So those are things that we can have in our control to improve sperm quality. Can I ask a personal question? When you were going through mm -hmm. these experiences with miscarriage and then you needed to get your partner involved with the testing, how did you have mm -hmm. that conversation with him? I said, this is what you need to do, no questions asked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bossy by nature. Um, so I was just like, you know, like I've gone through all of this. He could see how much it rocked me physically and emotionally. I was like, mm. you know, like there's no questions asked. This is what you're doing. And here's your supplements. Here's your glass of water. Um, mm. You know, there's just, it's sort of like, it does, it did sort of seem like a little bit of babying, like, okay, don't forget to, you know, take some capsicum yeah. or do this. But it's like, um, you know, I think they've got to feel like they're involved and they've got to feel educated. And so I was like, well, this is what we're doing. Um, but I sort of want to say something on that as well. We gave preconception 
a really red hot crack. I'd say, you know, 10 out of 10 in terms of doing all the right things. But we experienced a third loss um, after trying for about over a year. And so, you know, I think we had done all of the testing as well. I had an investigative laparoscopy thinking, you know, there might be endometriosis there. We were doing all the supplements, doing all the right things, but to fall pregnant for a third time and then have that loss at nine weeks was absolutely devastating considering I was so, we were so proactive. In terms of, this is a question that I think of very often and we we do talk about this in in the podcast quite a lot. In terms of that preconception period that you're talking about and obviously with recurrent loss, um, this might get sped up a little bit, but realistically how long does a person need to be working through you know the preconception side so taking the supplements changing their diet reducing alcohol um, before it starts to affect sperm and egg quality and that and then start trying yeah so I, one thing I didn't add into that is also age um, yeah uh, there is going to be a decline in fertility from ages around 35. But I would say for anybody who is consciously wanting to make some proactive uh, proactive changes for preconception, minimum three months. And the reason that we say that is because that is the maturation cycle for our egg um, that we will ovulate. And so what we're doing within that three months has the biggest impact on egg and sperm maturation cycles. Oh, okay. So is that the same for sperm? So. <laughs> Yeah, for those guys that sometimes take a little bit longer to get there, Mm. it's still three months for them to really make some serious changes. You can't like do it a week before and no way. Yeah, yeah. And you know that's also another thing that we see in clinic is that we see couples coming in and saying, "Um, "I'm going for my egg collection Mm. uh, in two weeks. What can I do?" It's like, well, your eggs that you're going to be harvesting or collecting in that two weeks are a product of maturation over that three months. Same Mm. with sperm. You know, like I was saying, it's around ninety to one hundred and twenty days. So. It's a bit of a long-term game and, you know, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be consistent. And it is something that I think a lot of women really struggle with. And I'm, you know, I've, we've, I openly talked about on the podcast that we had quite a bit of issues um, conceiving as well. We didn't have any losses. We just couldn't conceive. Um, But for us, I then, sorry, I then joined, you know, some support groups and stuff and the the biggest frustration amongst the women is men drinking and Mm. the alcohol and stopping the female. And they're all like, I can't drink. I'm in a period Mm. where I definitely don't drink. And and it's they're trying to work out how to have that conversation but also how to get the message across that it's an equal, you know, it's 50-50, it's a sperm and it's an egg. Yeah. Has to make there has to be so many things go right for you to get pregnant. Contrary to what happens when you're 17 and everyone tells you at the drop of the hat, if you see a boy, you're going to get pregnant. Um, it is actually, you know, quite difficult to go down that journey. And yeah, it just it's it's a hard one. It's a hard one for couples to navigate. I think. Um... You know, a lot of listeners will probably resonate with this is that you try to go out and socialize and just try to get a bit of normality back, whether you're on that sort of fertility journey or you have experienced loss. And then you see your partner, you know, having another beer or maybe having a cheeky vape or a smoke. And you have that sort of you sort of feel like resentful. It's like, well, we're a partnership here. And then you, you know, that resent that resent sort of fills up in this bucket and it's almost like and then you've got to go home and have time sort of intercourse with somebody who Mm. you're pissed off at because they're you know drinking or maybe doing something and it's just like yeah it's really tough from that perspective because in order to conceive you need to be intimate and Mm then if you're feeling frustrated at that person. So, um, you know, I'd say it's really important to communicate as much as possible and not, which, you know, I hear myself saying now, it's it's really easy to have that aggression and to sort of bark when, you, you know, you're like, I'm so frustrated. But I think they need 
understanding and, and saying, I'm upset because this, you know, is going to impact from this. And a lot of my treatment plans in, include a lot of research and references around why mm. I'm making these suggestions. It's not just me saying, I want you to cut back on alcohol. It's saying there's a really good study showing that more than six standard drinks within a week has a really detrimental impact on um, IVF fertility outcomes for a male partner. Um, And so if you can just sort of lay it out, really factual, no beating around the bush, then, you know, that's probably the, well, that's the way I go into it when I see couples. Um, Another factor to that as well is that, Conception is not just going to be a man and a woman. You know, we've got same-sex couples who are Mm. using sperm donors and they only get a small piece of information about that sperm donor. And so sometimes it feels like they're a little bit out of their control. It's like, well, I don't know much about this person and I guess you just have to focus on your own health and your own sort of relationships. I think that's a really important one that often gets overlooked and especially this is going to be me getting a little bit political. I apologise to everybody in this room. Um, (laughs) But especially knowing that they don't get any governmental rebates at Mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in terms of a normal IVF cycle is about $10,000 plus and that's ICSI. So it's a bit, there's, you know, different versions, but ICSI, which is, um, you know, one of the, the hardest ones to do. It's, you know, it's the full kit and caboodle, the sperm, the egg, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's, you know, it's 10,000 plus, right? And you get probably 50% of that back through Medicare. They don't have that option because they don't have the sperm. So they have to get a donor. They can't, you know, it can be, it's $20,000 for them to do that. So yeah. it's such a financial burden for people to be going through with you know and as you said you just want to be able to optimize those chances as much as possible yeah Um, because it's it's and on top of that it's devastating when it doesn't work you know the emotional toll that a lot of this has on people it's just devastating yeah and to think like not only have you had a say a failed transfer or even a loss but you've also lost financially and that's Mm. a lot to sort of grapple with as well and that can put extra strain onto a relationship but also if it's say um the the female involved in this they might be going into their super to use money for this and so it's like well you know I think it's really important from a fertility perspective that people don't take advantage of people in this situation and try to, you know, say, do this and do that. It's let's do what is research. Let's do what is going to be supporting you at the most. And do not forget those foundationals, um, nutrition, environment, you know, exercise, all those important things before you start complicating the situation even more. Exactly what you said. Like, again, I'm going to get political, but the super side of things, we talk about how much women are so behind in terms of their super and yet, as you said, a lot of women are, are having to access super to do this mm-hmm. and, you know, that's another burden. But you're right, it, you really need to, I think it's, you know, the people are very desperate in this situation to have a child and you need to be very cautious about, you know, what you're actually doing and just making yeah. sure that you're doing the right things yeah. and not, you know, not going down a rabbit hole. Exactly. And not just, you know, because at the moment, and I know, um, you know, you, I'm not like a religious person. I wouldn't say I'm a spiritual person, but sometimes I just catch myself like sitting out looking at a full moon or, you know, seeing a shooting star and just being like, please to whoever is out there this is all that I want right now um Mm. you just you you are very vulnerable because you will do anything to get the chance to fall pregnant or just to have a a healthy viable pregnancy Um, can I go back to your study that you mentioned about the sperm count dropping so you've spoken about um, alcohol playing a role in the decrease of sperm, but is there other lifestyle factors besides smoking and drinking that are affecting sperm count? 
Um, the biggest one would be chemical exposure. So thinking about different occupations for men, um, whether that be painting, whether that be mining, whether that be cleaning, um, you know, so many different factors around that. I would say the biggest thing that's within our control would be chemical exposure from an occupational level, from a home environment as well. Um, and then also thinking about things that maybe aren't in our control, such as previous testicular trauma. Um, you know, I when I'm in a consultation and I ask this question, they're like, oh, I did um, fall on a cricket stump on my testicles and didn't say anything because I was so embarrassed. Um, that was when I was like 15 or, you know, oh, yeah, my my dad has had this um, family history wise. It's like these are really important. You know, if you have any concerns around um, testicular health or even, you know, anything to do with intercourse, um, that's important and that should be brought up because previous or prior testicular trauma can be a big one that people don't really discuss. Mm -hmm. That's really really interesting actually playing footy you know being kicked in the balls playing sport getting tackled at rugby yeah interesting yeah or like my partner does um boxing and that's Mm. that's probably not great when you think about it (laughs) and you know there's like people are able to conceive but I'm talking about when somebody comes to see a naturopath I'm sort of like you know a bit of a try to be that fertility detective where I'm asking those random questions where I'm like, well, you know, we're trying to optimize. I don't know how you guys live. So I'm going to ask all the questions and try to get a good understanding. And then that can, you know, maybe spark some conversations. And I feel as though myself, I'm sort of someone to say, well, this is a plan. Let's put this together. And then this is who I'd recommend, you know, go see a fertility specialist, go get a semen analysis done. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the next steps involved here? I've always wondered, what are some misconceptions around miscarriage? Yeah, well, I don't want to contradict myself here, but I think a big one of the biggest misconceptions is that you've done something wrong to cause this. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of what I've said is um, factors that are in our control, but a lot of the time it's going to be because your body is smarter than our brains allow and our, you know, that our heart wants to be even so invested in this pregnancy. Our physical bodies are very smart. And if they detect that a pregnancy is not viable, it's not going to go ahead. And like I said, a lot of the time that's happening even before a pregnancy is confirmed via a pregnancy test. Um, And so I guess that's a big misconception. Another misconception is how common it is. Um, you know, I would have a lot of conversations about, oh my God, Chloe, don't you think that so many more people are miscarrying these days? I'm like, well, one, are more people just talking about it? You know, are we taking away the stigma associated with pregnancy loss? And two, you know, maybe, yes, that may be the case, but pregnancy tests are also getting more sensitive. And mm-hmm. so people are more aware um, that this is occurring. So I think probably the biggest misconceptions is the fact that that you've done something wrong to cause this, that Mm. pregnancy loss is, you know, um, rare. And thirdly, that the male isn't a big role in this. They are. They're at least 40% of the whole equation. I was just going to say off the back of that, that I think that's, I think that's really true. And I think a lot of people need to, which I've said earlier in the podcast, and I hope I've learned about that, people need to start getting more educated around fertility mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and how how many things go into fertility to make that one particular, you know, sperm, egg, match, to make an embryo that then implants. Um, it is, you know, it's not as easy as we think and I think people need to be really educated from a really early age. When I'm talking early, I'm talking, you know, probably in their late teens to start understanding about their body their fertility so that you know they might not be ready for another 10 years or so but they they actually have the right knowledge they're being armed with I don't think we're doing enough as a society to um 
people with that knowledge were doing a lot around sex education, but not a lot around fertility. Um, a point that I might make on that is um, when we're sort of thinking about recurrent loss, there's sort of five or so factors that are the, mm. the main sort of factors involved in investigation around recurrent loss. Of course, like I said, chromosomal or genetic issues, anatomical. Um, so when we're sort of thinking about the uterus, about the mm. fallopian tubes, about the ovaries, immune factors, hormonal issues, but another one there is going to be infection. And Clara, what were you mm. saying about, you know, as soon as you're um, sexually active, yeah. you are influencing your future fertility. Um, I have spoken openly about the fact that I had a um, undiagnosed chlamydia infection for probably about a year, maybe over a year. And when I did my investigative laparoscopy, they did find adhesions inside my fallopian tube um, or sort of like a webbing. Um, and when you think about the fallopian tube being the diameter or the opening of like mm. a sewing needle and an egg trying to make its way down, if there's any roadblocks or adhesions there then that's going to impact um, the ability to conceive and so even things like how common chlamydia infection is mm. you need to be on top of that and be aware if you're being sexually active you're at an increased risk of STIs if that goes undiagnosed we know that that can have a role in your future fertility. Mm. sounds scary but I think you know there's lots of good things involved in in um that but in terms of uh like being you know sexual but I think it, it is something that you just need to be educated on and not be scared about but just be yeah. aware and I also think it goes back to the old thing of wear a condom <laughs> that is a good point Clara now, Chloe, for our listeners who want to learn a little bit more and dive into pregnancy loss and learn more about their bodies, do you have any resources that they can go and check out? This book is written by two um, women based in the UK and it's called The Worst Girl Gang Ever and it sort of discusses stories about people who have experienced loss. Um, mm. You know, it can be quite triggering, but I think there is a time in your loss journey that all you want to be surrounded by is other people who, who get mm. you and understand what's going on. And so although that may not always be helpful to have that around, um, it may be useful. The other one is a book it's a little bit more medical and it's by um dr laura shashine um and it's called not broken and it mm. just sort of it, it resonated with me because it it's less about that sort of emotional and more about the practicality and logical side of pregnancy loss and saying okay these are the reasons why and you know sometimes i can be a little bit not lacking the emotional but I want to know the actual reasons why and say okay the body you know if you take the heart away what's going on here what are the reasons that we're looking at um and then of course you have the red no uh, rednose.org.au which talks about a lot of bereavement support and then um pink elephant support network so I can give a list of those for you guys yeah. to share but you know at a time when you're experiencing loss the biggest thing that you need is just support by other people who've gone through something similar. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and sharing your personal story. We really appreciate it and we know our listeners will too. And for anyone who wants to learn a little bit more, I'll put links in the show notes below. Watch this podcast, please give us a five-star review and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. We want to help as many people as possible live healthier lives. This podcast is general in nature. We aren't doctors or health practitioners. But if this podcast has prompted something for you, we really encourage you to make an appointment with your health practitioner and get advice that is tailored to you. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.